Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just after 1 p.m., we're about to get started with your favorite hour of the day. Um, I will be riding solo sort of today. Greg, my partner in crime, is in Ethiopia living his best life. So hopefully he'll come back with some stories, maybe some coffee. Um, actually, before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you. We were reviewing the numbers over the weekend and just looking at the Twitter engagements. And it's just been wonderful to see the reception of people listening to shows, downloading shows, sharing shows. And it's it's been incredible. Um, we were commemorating over the weekend the, the one-year anniversary of the Garissa attacks in, in Kenya. Um, and just people going back to that episode and sharing that and remembering that, you know, over 140 people that were killed. Um, so it's just thank you for helping us sort of spotlight issues like this and try to s- sort of dig deeper. Also, we finally gave away the book for Richard Poplack and Kevin Bloom. We had a stiff competition for people who were engaging with us on that episode, and that's been given to one lucky listener. And we launched Greg Marinovich's book on, on the Marikana Massacre. So it's been a busy, busy couple of weeks with the Daily Maverick team. Whew, okay. Now to focus on this week. Um, we'll be talking about this, this, this sort of field or world that a lot of people don't know too much about. And I've been hearing a lot of, a lot of words I don't understand, like social entrepreneurship, social impact bonds. And there seems to be new creative ways that people are finding to fund social good. So we want to dig into this. Why does the nonprofit sector exist at all? Why are, why are nonprofits struggling to stay open and stay alive? And lastly, what are some clever ways that are emerging in which they can get funded? To dig into this, I have someone in studio who's much more qualified than me on the topic, Karen Krakowitz of Capacitate. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. If you just step a bit closer to the mic and be right in front of it, all right, let's try this again. Karen? Pleasure. All right, all right, all right. She's with us. She's with us. She's with us. Karen, I mean, now you're a development consultant, you work with nonprofits, you work with corporate, but I'm, I'd like to just go a bit further back and start with, you know, you in the sector yourself. Now, you used to run a nonprofit organization, didn't you? That's correct. Could you, could you tell us a bit about that? What did it do? Yes, sure. Um, the nonprofit organization was called NOAA. Um, it was a large South African child protection NGO. And, and I led it some years ago, um, whilst simultaneously developing a sustainability trust that existed alongside it in order to provide for the future of the organization. Um, Noah was really um, interested in developing community-based child protection organizations that would look after the needs of vulnerable children in mm. those communities. Mm. Mm. And it did that by establishing what it named ARCs. And... Um, Yes, it was uh, an interesting time for all. I mean, I'm curious. You mentioned sort of centers where 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 orphans can be safe, and 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 I mean that when the second you describe that, it sounds to me like a like a government function. Why 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 was there? Why did this gap exist? Why wasn't this being provided for to begin with? Well, I think that the state continues to perform less of the functions that it should be and is withdrawing from many areas Mm. of social support. I think focus areas change from time to time. And also often the uh, funding policies of governments are very tightly controlled by the um, Public Finance Management Act with little to no wiggle room. So it's quite difficult to align exactly with what what government's able to spend on. 
I also think that corporates are ever tightening and refocusing the impact areas that they wish to support. Mm. And, um, and again, we're seeing shifts in trend. So there are gaps that open up all the time for civil society to step in. I mean, I mean, I hear you. Um, I mean, just to understand more about, about Noah, could you give us an idea of the, of the, of the size? How many, how many orphans when you care? How many arcs did you, mm. did you sort of fund and support just to get an idea of how, of how big this was? Sure. Well, obviously it was, um, different sizes at different times. Yeah. Um, at the height of my tenure, mm. we had mm. over 400 uh, permanent staff members. Jeez. We had seven to 800 volunteers. Um, we were probably serving about 112 communities. So it was a big organization. Jeez. How many young people would you sort of estimate were in the care of the arcs? I mean, I say estimate because I can imagine. Yeah, yes. you say it 112 was probably, communities. It was 20, 28,000 or so. 28,000? Yes. Okay. I mean, Karen, I mean, you've been referring to Noah in the past tense. Um, Noah is, is sort of no longer there. And I'd love if you could just run us through, you know, what happened. 28,000 people in your care. I mean, crucial, crucial services. We're talking about, you know, you know, orphans in, in, in really vulnerable communities. Mm. What happened? Well, Noah was the recipient of a very large international grant, which came to an end in 2012. Um, at that time, every indication pointed to the fact that Noah would receive further funding in terms of a new grant um, from the same funder. Mm. And then it didn't. Simultaneous to that, Noah was uh, busy implementing a new strategy, and so there was a lot of change that all happened at the same time. And unfortunately, as a result of this reduction in income, which accounted for nearly two-thirds of the expenditure of the whole organization, um, Noah needed to structure a, a grant closeout, so it mm. effectively scaled mm. back um, a significant portion of its operation at that time. I think in the region of 320 staff were retrenched, um, and financial support was withdrawn from around 67 ARCs, which supported in the region of about 11,000 vulnerable children. And, yeah, a little bit later, and I wasn't um, actually heading up the organization mm. at this time, mm. but there was a final decision taken to close the organization after mm. nearly 13 years of operation. I mean, I'm just, like, I keep sitting on this sort of 28,000 figure, and you're mentioning retrenching 300 out of 400 people. Mm. I mean, how, how, how does that happen? How does two thirds of the organization's budget just not be there anymore? I mean, you say the indications were there that it, it was going to be refunded and it wasn't. Yes. Is that, how does that happen? Well, I think it's about, um, you know, perhaps a mismatch of, of understanding or expectations. I think it's about not having things committed to in writing. It's about, um, living in hope. <laughs> um, and then it's about things not coming to fruition and also having too many eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, I think there were lots of, of lessons that we learned through the, that story, you know, around over-reliance on one donor. Um, in our case, we also had a rainmaker, someone within the organization mm. who had the ability to pull in money in, in a much uh, more profound way than mm. many others. Um, yeah, and I think certainly what I learned by being exposed to the process of watching Noah close down is that when times are tough, friends are definitely few. <laughs> Um, also, reserve building, which we all know is mm. is easy in theory, is quite hard in practice. And when challenging times come along, reserves are whittled away very quickly. Um, the other thing is that sustainability strategies really take time. You know, we think that if you get a business going or set up some kind of income generation activity, that that's going to sustain you. But in order for it to become big enough to make a significant impact in your budget and to be able to replace a sufficient portion of your your income, um, you really need to provide years, years and years, in order to get it right. I mean, I hear you, Karen, and I'm 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 just trying to think of the 
of the sort of scale of this. I mean, so we're talking about one organization that you were leading, 28,000 you know, young people in your care. Mm. And, and what has felt for me, at least, with some involvement in the nonprofit space, is that there seems to be a higher rate of nonprofits closing in the past, mm. shall we say, four years, three years. Um, I mean, some are attributing it to sort of the global financial crisis and, and sort of the knock-on effect of that. Um, but there was also the, sort of the large withdrawal of, 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 of American funding that happened a few years ago. So, I mean, are, are you getting a sense that nonprofits are sort of less stable in the past couple of years or less likely to stay open? There seems to be sort of something going on at, at a macro level. Yes, no, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. I think global economic pressures have um, played a huge role in creating instability in the sector. I think that there's definitely a reduction in the availability of funding, both mm. locally and mm. internationally, as a result of economic conditions. Um, definitely, our organizations are under increasing pressure to diversify their revenue sources and to optimize their operations really for lean efficiency. Um, and on, on the other hand, mm. we have uh, increasing competition. You know, our social needs seem to just keep getting bigger. There, there are more of them all the time. Um, I was just looking at some stats this week um, in terms of the number of registered non-profit mm, organizations mm. in the country at the moment. And I'd always had it in my mind that there were around 100,000 of them registered with the non-profit directorate mm. um, of the Department of Social Development. And it seems like it's closer to 150,000 rand. Uh, sorry, not uh, rand, 150,000 organizations, which is huge. So, you know, where are they getting their funding from? How are they complementing each other? I guess what this speaks to is the need to focus on collaboration and partnership and bringing work closer and closer together and not to keep on setting up new entities. I mean, I hear you. <laughs> now, you had sort of started jumping into things, things we can learn from your experience, from Noah's experience, mm. um, and from the experience of, of other nonprofits that were really serving vulnerable communities that were performing really essential mm. functions that the country needed. And, and I mean, firstly, credit to you for being able to take what was, I can imagine, a very pain, painful and difficult experience and being able to still find lessons in that and pass them on. Thank you. Um, I mean, secondly, you had started talking about them and you were mentioning things like, things like reserves. You were talking things about sustainability. So what, what's, if you could just go back to that, what are, what are some lessons that you think existing existing nonprofits could could learn from your from your experience? Um, I think that you know another big lesson for me was mm. that an organisation can only weather so much change at one time. Okay, and so the fact that we were trying to uh, you know scale down the organisation in size in response to the ending of that grant, and we were trying to implement a new strategy all at the same time, it was probably all a bit much for an organisation that had um, been through a fairly serious amount of trauma. I think that. Um, the boards really need to step up to the plate when it comes to um, sustainability strategies as well. Um, I have seen and I'm now working quite a lot with organizations and helping them think through their sustainability planning. Mm, and mm. the quality of boards in this country, um, you know, in the nonprofit sector is not all that high. Um, and really, the board plays a critical role in helping an organization, you know, think broadly, move quickly and really to be able to execute its plans. So board support is key. Um, I think that non-profit organizations need to make sure that they don't initiate sustainability activities too late. Um, as I said before, it really does take time to um, fill the gaps in terms of, of income should any money come to an end. Mm. 
Um, and when doing sustainability planning, it's really important to factor in short-term, medium-term and long-term opportunities and not just focus on the long-term ones um, or just on the short-term ones. We need to have a spread of, of activities. And perhaps some other learners, uh, learnings, if, if I may, um, when it comes to the funding of activities, mm, mm. I think that funders and development practitioners um, have a few things that they can learn from the no story as well. Firstly, um, it's really beginning with the, the end in mind, okay. knowing that you're not going to support an organization into perpetuity. At some point, you know, you're going to want to move on and you're going to want to leave them in a position better than when you when you joined them. Mm. Um, and so it's really, you know, building those exit strategies from the start and making sure that you're providing for sustainability thinking and not just helping think through sustainability initiatives, but also to dedicate sufficient time and resources to partners to enable them to explore sustainability activities so that you're able to leave a legacy when you go and that you're not creating a gap or a hole that can't be filled and inevitably um, facilitating the closure of an organization. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm, I mean, you mentioned a lot, so I'm just going to try sort of sort of dig into some of the things you've mentioned. What's underpinning this, it sounds to me, is this idea that Financial sustainability needs to be a crucial part of leading a nonprofit organization. Mm. Not, not just providing your direct services, but directing resources, manpower, and sort of, sort of leadership attention to an organization's financial sustainability. I mean, I think that's just worth mentioning in itself because I imagine if my job is to, you know, provide food to areas where there's food scarcity to provide water to areas where there's drought i would build my organization to do that yes and what you're saying is that's not enough you have to be able to do that but at the same time think through how can you make sure that you're able to do that in the long term so i think that sounds like already a shift in thinking mm. where it's not enough to just be like we're good at thing x and this is how we do it mm. there's now another level of, of how do we make sure we're continuously able to do this exactly Jeez, how <laughs> this and this idea you're mentioning of 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 doing this from the beginning. So what you're almost describing is that if you're running out of money and you're trying to scramble and trying to plug holes, it sounds like it's already too late. Can't be. And that's 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 a really sort of worrying thing to think of because I mean in any situation, not just in nonprofits, mm. when money's tight, you start thinking about the money more. That's right. And you're saying no. When when it's the time of feast, not just the time of famine, you really need to be thinking about about the, about financial sustainability. Often in my facilitations, I yeah. use the analogy of Noah's Ark just because it's a universal <laughs> story that uh, <laughs> that everyone knows yeah, of, and there's yeah. no relationship, obviously, to the, the arcs of of my Noah, but. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, the truth is that in that story, um, the ark was built in the sunshine long before the storms arrived and the first raindrops started falling. And that was what enabled Noah to build an ark that was big enough to mm-hmm. ultimately save humanity. Um, had they started building the ark, you know, closer to when the storms were due to arrive, they might not actually have managed to build an ark at the end of the day. It could have been something more like a lifeboat that, <laughs> you know, saved two or three animal species yeah. and that was it. Yeah. Um, the, the critical message there is just that this is something that requires planning and you have to provide for the bad times during the good times. Um, because if you wait for the bad times to arrive, it's more than likely going to be way too late. I can't put it any better than, better than that, Karen. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Sean Cliff Central, in studio with Karen Krakowitzer from Capacitate. 
And we're just talking about the non-profit sector. I'm exploring some sort of really tragic stories of really important non-profits around the country that have unfortunately had to close down due to lack of funding. And we're trying to learn from that. What are they doing wrong? What could they have done better? And what is this thing around financial sustainability? I mean, everybody knows we need more money, but how, how do you make that happen? How do you structure it? How do you save in advance? And how do you build the ark while the sun is shining, as Karen puts it? Karen, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear an example of an organization that's doing this well. I mean, when you're describing this, it sounds, it sounds really complicated. You're talking about having the board right, thinking in advance, building this in advance. If you just explain to me, what, what does this look like, financial sustainability? What does it look like when it's working well? Um, you know, I'd be loath to give specific examples yeah. of organizations mm. that are doing a good job of it because mm. there's so many of them. Sure. And um, I think it's really about organizations that, you know, are obviously subsidizing their nonprofit or their social work mm. um, that needs to be, you know, a service that's given away with um, services that are um, income generating and that enable them to continue their work without creating dependency on, on funders. And, um, yeah, many organizations doing great things. Um, I think very often what happens is, is that, um, they set up, uh, businesses alongside the work that they're actually doing, mm. um, that either complement their existing services or are completely separate. I've seen examples on both sides. Okay. So uh, sometimes they invest, um, in shares and other companies in order to be able to create some kind of dividend flow. Mm. Um, so perhaps I can give you some, some examples without mentioning names there, but, um, you know, I know of a nonprofit organization, for example, that runs a school, um, for, uh, previously disadvantaged children mm. that have learning challenges mm. and what they've done in order to um, sustain that work is to set up an FET college that um, enables them to attract income that then subsidizes the work that they're mm. doing in the schools. Mm. So that would be one good example. Okay. An example of an organization that has... Sorry, if I could just stop on that. Mm. So the school the school you're mentioning, is a, this is a free or close to free school, I'm assuming. That's that correct. Non-profit runs, and then yes. you set up an FET college correct. and you charge you run that just as you would a business exactly and you charge and whatever it's super professional and then you use the profits from the FET college to fund the school yes okay. and it's a clever model because yep. the FET college is obviously affiliated to all of the CETAs mm. it's got all the relevant BEE yep. credentials it attracts support from corporate it's able to um, provide enterprise development um, you know return on investment mm. and, and things like skills development return on investment etc and so you know it's quite an attractive proposition for anyone who wants to support that whether it be putting their own staff um, through the institution Mm. Or perhaps just youth that you know they would like to see having a better life, okay. but ultimately it's it's earning a profit that enables this organisation to sustain the the work being done in the school for these people with learning challenges. Absolutely, and I love that it's still in the same field. So yeah. it's not it's not now trying to figure out how to build you know bicycles. It's saying we are already doing education. We have some sort of core competencies in the education yes. space and sort of leveraging that to make a bit of money. Exactly. It can happen, however, that you do something that's completely yeah. unrelated to what you do as your core business. Mm. So, for example, I've seen another organization that um, works with uh, foreign nationals in the inner city and they uh, provide um, they provide products in the form of fertilizers and other um, agricultural related items, um, you know, to the market in partnership with one of their ex-funders. <laughs> so they've just forged a partnership based on a, a strong relationship and have been able to create an entire business around that that's complete, completely unrelated to what they do. 
So it sort of works both ways. And yeah. I was singing the praises of doing, of sort of, I don't say minding your own business, but for focusing on the stuff you know. But it sounds like there's still clever ways to get around that. To get around that. And another example that uh, has just come to mind is um, an organization that decided to to buy shares in a company. Um, and it works with uh, people that are quadriplegic. And um, it bought shares in a company that manufactures wheelchairs. I mean, mm. how smart is that? So you're actually now um, able to control to some extent an organization that is providing product that you're going to mm. need on a daily basis mm. and you're making a profit um, in the process through dividends. It sounds like there's a lot there's a lot of options here and I'm Definitely. and I'm looking forward to actually dividing and sort of digging up the differences before before <laughs> confusing myself and saying we could buy shares, we could also start a business because it sounds like there's just sort of so many opportunities and only so much sort of time and funding and capacity. Sure. Okay. If you're just listening in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're just gonna go into a really short break and then we'll be right back. Exploring some of these alternative income opportunities that Karen is describing, looking at social entrepreneurs and how they're funding their work. And looking at clever things like buying shares in companies. How does that work? I mean I can barely do it for myself. I wonder how it works for non profits do it. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. The Daily Maverick Show on Cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on The Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Just about halfway through the show, we're talking about this thing called the non-profits and the different and creative ways that people are funding the social good, the shortcomings of sort of the traditional charity way of doing things. And looking at, we've got great challenges in this country around inequality, around disenfranchised communities and, and people and, and saying, how do, we, how do we generate the money to do the things that we know need to get done? I'm joined in studio by Karen Krakowitz of Capacitate, who has a lot, lot, lot of experience not only running a nonprofit but in advising, in advising existing ones on how and how to pay for stuff, how to keep the lights on, and how to keep the communities they're working with sort of receiving the essential services. Karen, you mentioned just before we went into the break a lot of clever and creative ways that nonprofits are are are, are exploring um, to, to to fund the really important work they're doing. And, and as you were talking, I was really stuck and, and confused about how to decide. I'm here and I'm, and I'm running, I'm running my important nonprofit work. I'm caring for the elderly. I'm, I'm, I'm providing food for, for drought areas. And you're saying that they, I could, that I could do anything basically, whether, uh, limited to my mission or, or in a different field or scope altogether. How, how do I decide? How do I explore and think through the different avenues I could explore to, to fund the important work I'm doing? I think it begins with a look at your organization's own strengths and assets because if you can align what you do every day with what you want to do mm. in order to you know, generate alternate income opportunities, it does make life a lot easier. Okay. So I would certainly say begin with, with you know, what you've got. Um, and perhaps it is useful for me at this point to just give a few examples around how one can do that. Mm. So, you know, there, there's simple ways that one can look at it. Um, you know, you could do an asset mapping exercise where you look at everything that you have in place and say, well, how could this be used to better effect? So mm. you could look at um, your office space, for example, and say, well, could we rent out surplus office space in order to generate an income? Mm. Or you could look at your products and services and say, well, we're currently giving them away, but could we be selling them actually? Um, so in many instances, we see nonprofit organizations packaging up their training materials for different audiences and charging for their use, for example. In some instances, people will start to sell their research instead of giving the research away. Maybe you've got a fleet of vehicles that can be used mm. for alternate mm. purposes. So mm. it's really about saying, what do we have and how could it be used differently to how we're using it 
currently. Then there are more complex ways that you can be looking at this and sort of saying, well, can we take our entire program or a large portion of it and almost commercialize it? So, for example, I've been working with um, a large, almost regarded as a public health facility that's providing services currently to people that can't afford health services. Mm. And having a look at, you know, whether a portion of their operation could be commercialized and perhaps marketed again um, through a rebranding exercise to perhaps a different audience that can afford to pay, um, you know, linking it into medical aids, et cetera, that sort of thing. So um, there's definitely um, a lot that one can do to kind of rethink, um, you know, a lot aspect of what you are currently doing um, you know if you are operating as a distribution channel at the moment as an organization why could you not use that same distribution channel to supply other product or other services you know at a, at a fee um, you could start a completely new business if you didn't have any ideas for how you could convert existing mm. assets or strengths mm. into into opportunities for sure and then of course owning shares would be you know another option if if that was something that you felt that you had the know-how and the ability to mm. to coordinate mm. Mm. I, I, I mean just as you're talking it, it it just it sort of occurs to me that isn't there a worry about getting distracted from the core work i mean if i'm if i'm doing thing x and now I'm all of a sudden I'm trying to, you know, use my fleet of vehicles to deliver packages on the weekend, and that's bringing in money, and my cowork doesn't bring in money. Mm. Is there a worry that it might dilute the quality of the services, or that it may just be, it would just take up, you know, precious time and resources that could be used on the cowork? Mm. Um. Look, there's always going to be a concern like that. I think it's like any other change management process. Mm. Um, if, if we compare this to the business world, for example, as soon as you start introducing new lines, mm. new divisions, new products, um, you know, th- there's always that risk. So it's really about how you you place those new things into your overarching strategy and make sure that they are provided for and managed in the best and most effective manner. Um, certainly once a business or an income generating activity becomes comes large enough to warrant having its own leadership that's mm. definitely a, a, cons- a consideration okay um, but I mean certainly when nonprofit organizations are just trying their hand at a few new little things mm. um, you would house it within the same entity okay. that you're doing all of your your social work and you would just kind of grow it gently within there until it warranted having its own focus okay so the second you need to have a sort of head of head of fleet management for income generation <laughs> and titles like that that's a time when it might be worth sort of relooking at the structure yes like. and and possibly it's it's actually the the legal entity that the structure is housed in as yeah. well So you might want to be spinning it out of the non-profit organization And into something that's a little bit more commercial mm. in structure okay. I mean the secondly is and, and I don't mean to be the, the ultimate black hat in this conversation <laughs> It's just I mean the, the stats on, on a lot of small businesses and micro enterprises Is that they don't, they don't survive They don't last very long um, and, you know, and very few of them make it out of the five years w- 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 Does that apply to To to, to small businesses that are sort of set up as part of, of, of non-profit activity, are they more or less likely to succeed? Because I wonder if, if it's already so hard, does it made it, will it not overtax the existing work? Um, look, I think that, um, you know, a new business within yeah. a non-profit entity has got all the same exposure mm. as any new business mm. in, in the commercial space. So you would need to think through it in the same way as you would any kind of commercial yeah. activity. Um, you want to do your business planning, your feasibility analysis, your stakeholder analysis. You want to understand who your target market is. You want to make sure that the items are profitable. Um, so, no, there's no reduction in risk, you know, unless mm. you've been able to kind of uh, secure your, um, uh, your go-to-market 
market through perhaps one of your existing partners mm. or something like mm. that. So, uh, yeah, I think it has to be thought through very carefully. And I think you want to obtain the right advice and counsel from the right sorts of people. And you re- do you want to rely on your board and make sure that, you know, you've got uh, good, solid uh, support and, and networking around what it is that you're going to be doing? Okay. I, that's, I wish I could just scribble all that stuff down. That sounds like a, the ultimate sort of checklist or how-to guide. Karen, I, I mean, a, a word that I've been coming across a lot is this idea of social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. Mm. We've been talking about sort of alternate alternate uh, income generation. And I'm, and I'm curious, is it the same thing? Is it different? What is a social enterprise? Is it just any non-profit that's bringing in money? Is it a... A for-profit company that's doing sort of social goodish work. What what is what is this word and what does it mean? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, a social enterprise is a financially sustainable business. So it's almost the business that comes first, I guess. <laughs> but uh, you know, if if you've developed uh, the nonprofit organisation first and you're now wanting to convert it into a business, that's mm. possible as well. Okay. But it needs to be a financially sustainable business, where profits, if any are reinvested to address social problems. And that's really the nuts and bolts of it. So the social purpose is the primary objective. But the business model must be finally uh, must be financially sustainable and critical here is that it's not for individual gain. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a it's a fairly broad term and just says are you financially sustainable and is your is your vision, is your mandate really centered around um around some kind of Creating a sort of positive social change in some sense. So it sounds like it can be, it can take different forms. Is that fair to say that a for-profit company can be a social enterprise, a non-profit company can be a social enterprise? Am I am I getting you correctly? Yeah, it's it is very broad, and there are definitely a lot of different forms that that it can take. Um, and it might be that you begin with the social focus and that you develop the, the business focus later, or it might be that you have a business focus. And I've seen this um, happen before as well. It was actually in the context of an advertising agency yeah. had the business focus and then suddenly decided actually they wanted to remodel and repurpose themselves entirely for a social mandate. And so it can can go that way around too. I mean, I'm really fascinated by this idea of a, of a, of a for-profit business really centering on this, on this social, creating positive social change. I mean, just when I think of capitalism at its sort of growest form, that just seems ridiculous. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that, perhaps that particular agency or, or other uh, sort of stories you've come across where a for-profit business either changes along the way or is actually just set up to provide sort of social, social, uh, Social what? <laughs> Positive social outcome, shall I say? Yeah. Um, where is this coming from, and where have you seen this? Where have you seen this happen? So I think it really just boils down to the individuals that are involved. You know, it mm. would be around um, someone who's uh, sort of perhaps run uh, a business for some time and has has achieved what they've needed to achieve, made the money that they've needed to make, and then decide that actually, you know, they want to live their life in a different way mm. and to. Um, kind of reorganize their world um, in alignment with a calling um, and then decide that they will take people on the, the journey with them that are prepared to support that and then kind of work backwards from there. And that's incredible. And and I've been hearing more and more, I don't say wider, or even creative definitions of really understanding what what, what positive social outcomes are. And I had, I, I, I had a friend who a couple of weeks ago was trying to explain to me why Uber is actually a social enterprise. And they were trying to explain to me that if we own less cars and more people are using Uber, all of a sudden you've got less congestion in inner cities. You've got lower pollution and, and emission of carbon, sort of, of carbon from cars. And that's, that's, that's 
a really, really big contributor towards global warming. It's thus vehicles and, and our insistence that everybody must have their own car, which is absolutely not necessary. Sure. And they were trying to convince me that, that Uber is a social enterprise. <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, no, it can't be. Uber has billions in the bank <laughs> that they're just blowing all over the world, expanding at six times every year. So in, in my mind, it was just so difficult to understand that. But at the same time, I found it hard to, to counter because Despite the for-profit motive, one could argue that there are really creative ways at creating, creating social good and, and positive uh, outcomes sure. for the it's world. Almost like there's a social spin-off. Yeah, <laughs> I like that spin-off. I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure Uber. We had the GM of Africa, I think, Alon Litz on the show a few weeks ago. I think he'd love the idea that Uber just sort of has a Mother Teresa approach to getting us where we need to go. Exactly. I mean, Karen, just to bring you back, thanks for defining this idea of a social enterprise, and I'm. I'm curious about the last thing you mentioned, which was this idea you mentioned that some companies own shares mm. or some non-profit organization own shares. How does that work? How does a non-profit then own shares in another company and, and, and how, how does that work? Um, you know, all of these things are quite complicated mm. and they can mm. take different forms and, and there are many different structures, um, in which one can hold, um, you know, different types of, of sustainability activity. Um, very often organizations that are wanting to go into the ownership space and mm. to hold shares establish separate sustainability vehicles in order to do so. Um, I can give you an example or two of Yeah, please. Of Cause this idea of, when second you say vehicle, I just, I feel like we're not, we're talking about Uber. I'm not confused. What, what do you mean by a sustainability vehicle. So a sustainability vehicle would be um, a, a separate entity uh, that sits alongside the non-profit organization that has uh, different leadership and different credentials that enable it to participate in business activity, but where there's a passive income stream, income stream that's set up to flow directly to the non-profit organization. And perhaps it would be best explained by way of example. Mm. So um, one of the, the bigger ones that I know relates to Love Life the um, the youth-based uh, HIV initiative mm, that mm. we've it's sort of an awareness campaign I guess that we've known for many many years in the country um, they established many years ago an organization called the Kurosani Love Life Trust so it was a trust it was completely separate to Love Life but the sole beneficiary was Love Life and Kurosani was set up in order to be able to participate particularly in renewable energy deals when those started um, emerging in the country and effectively it's um, participating as a a broad-based black economic empowerment owner and is able to participate as the black shareholder in BEE deals. And so Kurosani has racked up many shares over time in various projects, developments, uh, and companies and is able to now earn dividends off of those shares that enable it to provide a sort of annuity income stream to Love Life on an annual basis. Um, quite a quite a complicated structure, but something that um, has proven to be very successful. Um, and another example um, in this vein is Dittakeni Investment Company Limited, who are based in Cape Town. Mm. They mm. also participate in many share deals, um, except that they don't exist to support one nonprofit organization. Mm. They've got a number of shareholder beneficiaries um, that they provide support to. So they operate as almost an investment vehicle that's managing shares on behalf of um, numerous Nonprofit organizations doing important work in the country. And at the end of the year, when they've wrapped up their financials and they know how much they've got mm. to distribute, everyone benefits in direct proportion to the number of shares held. I mean, this sounds, I mean, you, as you said, complicated, but also just really fascinating. It so there's, there's, there's some kind of deal going on, whether it's a sale or a company going public. It sounds like there's a lot of sort of scope there. And then if, if a company needs a certain amount of sort of black owned 
black-owned shares mm-hmm. rather than approach individuals, they go to a non-profit and That's say, exactly you it. own these shares. Yeah. And then from then on, they can get dividends from the company and so on. That sounds like a tremendous opportunity. I feel like more people should know about this. Where's the, I don't know, the take a lot of the Craigslist for, for these sort of opportunities? Or? Well, look, I think that yeah. it requires clever structuring. It takes yeah. um, a lot to set this sort of thing up. You need the right kinds of people involved mm. um, to be at the, the coal face. So you need to have people that are in the know when it comes to, you know, the sourcing of these deals and how to put them all together. Um, it definitely takes some upfront investment. Um, and then obviously, I imagine there are you need some investment bankers and somebody in the, in the room on your side just to understand that the, what you're getting into. I mean, definitely. I'd be terrified signing that contract if I didn't know. <laughs> no, you would. So, I mean, this is where you start to rely heavily on, on board members mm. and, and members of your network in order to be able to bring the different skills to bear that would be required to see any one of these deals through. And of course, the structuring can look quite different from one deal to the next as well. It might be that in some instances, the shares are donated to the nonprofit organization. In other instances, it might be that they are um, sort of financed and then you would pay them back out of dividends. Um, in other mm. instances, you know, you would um, perhaps be able to pay back later. Uh, there's just lots of different ways in which this whole thing can play out. And so you definitely need people that are in private equity or, are, you know, squarely placed in the finance space to be able to advise on on the structuring. Okay. Sorry, if you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Um, thank you for everybody who's tweeting in. I see you and I'm trying to, to make it all happen. If I don't apply to your tweet, just, you know, tweet at Greg Nicholson and tell him if he spent less time, you know, holidaying and added some more time in the <laughs> studio. You might have somebody to tweet. But just going to the last portion of the show and I'm still exploring and trying to fumble my way through this this topic about how or how we can fund social good and creative ways we can find to really tackle some of the, the 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 really great challenges the country faces us and what are some clever ways we can put you know put money where it's where it's most needed in the most sort of vulnerable spaces and most and most vulnerable communities. Karen, you've you've mentioned this thing and we were sort of talking about it over email before and you were saying this idea of investment vehicles, endowment vehicles, and there was now this this thing of social impact bonds came up. And I was literally like, I have no idea what this is. I, I barely understand the basic bond on, and now it's a social impact bond. And I, how does that work? Uh, wow. <laughs> well, firstly, just to say that yeah. um, social impact bonds are, are relatively new um, financing mechanisms. I think that uh, worldwide, there are probably only about 50 of them in operation, which is not that many. Mm. Um, in Africa, we have literally just launched the very first instances of social impact bonds. Mm. And so we're still to really wait and see how that all is going to play out. Um, in our country at the moment, Bertha Center at the UCT Graduate School of Business has really mm. taken the lead in this area. And on the 18th of March, they announced um, in partnership with the Western Cape Departments of Health and Social Development mm. that we would be launching three new social impact bonds in Africa. They are really focused on improving health, nutrition, and developmental status of pregnant women and children. So that's the the outcome that Mm. they're hoping to achieve through the launch of these social impact bonds. But um, to your question, a social impact bond is really a contracting and a financing mechanism that has been designed to drive better social outcomes. Um, Typically, they are established in partnership with governments. Um, and effectively, they work by attracting socially motivated investors, normally from the private sector, yeah. to fund social services upfront. So they pay for the services upfront. And then repayments to these investors are made by government 
and sometimes private funders as well, if pre-agreed outcome targets are achieved. But here's the key. They need to be independently verified. So you actually need someone like an auditor to sit outside of the structure mm. and to make sure that if you say that this particular outcome is going to be achieved, that it is in fact achieved. And then what happens is that the government um, would would repay the investor based on the hitting of that target. Sometimes if they hit all their targets, they can be paid a premium, so they can actually earn a bonus for having hit all the targets. And sometimes if they don't hit their targets, then the amount that they get they get paid um, is either discounted or is actually not paid back at all. Wow. So effectively, the risk then falls to the investor to make sure that those outcomes are in fact achieved. So we need to find something, something that's I'm assuming something quite big to to, to require this kind of this kind of financing. You set up a bond, corporate corporate puts in some money up front and says we're going to put up, I don't know, a billion rand for these specific outcomes. That billion rand is then available to be spent on the, on the, on the good stuff. Provided those things are hit, government pays the investor back Correct. potentially with a premium depending on how well it went. That's it. Okay. Who's at the center of this? Who's the, is, is that the non-profit? Um, yeah, so you've got a program yeah. operator that sits in the middle yeah. that's actually doing the work. Um, but there's another body as well, um, which is an intermediary that kind of holds it all together. They're responsible for operating um, as as exactly that, an intermediary and communicating between all parties, setting up the contracting, making sure that the results and the indicators are in fact being measured and then ensuring that the, the funds flow, um, you know, once the, the results have been verified. Okay, so it sounds like a couple of people in the room. I imagine this is another example where it helps to have some kind of perhaps finance or banking or, or legal or legal expertise on one's board or one's team just to be a part of explaining and understanding what's going on. Most definitely. Okay. <laughs> Karen, in our, in our conversation, just as we came in, you, you mentioned an organization called Project Isizwe that's mm. been, that's really explored this sort of innovative space or cutting edge of, of financing social good that we're talking about. Could mm. you tell us a bit about that? Well, I think perhaps just to sort of uh, frame the discussion, yeah. there are many, many types of innovative social finance that exist. It would be too difficult, almost impossible to discuss them all. Um, every deal or every new um, instance of social finance takes its own flavor mm. and looks different to the one that took place before it. But mm. I thought that, you know, in trying to explain how things could be structured differently, it might be useful to look at an example of an organization that has been trying to see how finance can be used to their benefit um, with different degrees of impact mm. actually being achieved. So Project Deceaseware is an organization that's been rolling out free Wi-Fi networks across the country. You may have heard of the free Tswane Wi-Fi mm, project. Mm, mm. Um, that's uh, a network that's been deployed by Project Deceaseware. Um, their principal focus is on deploying free, free Wi-Fi through public spaces in really low-income community um, communities. They are primarily funded by government. Um, if we think about the merits of connecting people to the internet, it's not difficult to, to realize that, mm. uh, you know, there are a lot of social benefits that come as a result of connecting people to the internet. Things like boosting economic development, improving education, lifting people out of poverty, connecting them to jobs, um, improving social inclusion and making people feel connected, that mm. sort of thing. Mm. However, that can be quite a difficult thing to prove. 
so you know project to see and i know because i've been working with them over time um has explored different ways of um thinking through what kinds of models might be applied in their context and what we sort of looked at was that there were different structures you could look at an outputs based structure versus a results based structure and finally, an outcomes-based structure, which would be closer to the social impact bond that we described just now. But if we recognize that there are numerous proof of concepts and um, numerous research papers that explain the benefits of connecting people to the Internet, then we know that there is a notional impact if we connect people to the Internet. Mm. And on an outputs basis, it sees where could simply connect communities to a free Wi-Fi network and be deemed to be having an impact. Does absolutely. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So the impact funder in an outputs-based finance model would simply pay project to where as base stations go live or people actually connect to the network. Okay, so okay, every so person you sign up, we give you whatever. Well, yeah, exactly. X, so X, it would be X, something like that. Run, yeah. If you took it up a notch mm. and you wanted to look at results, you could say, okay, well, Project Deceaseware is not only connecting communities to the free Wi-Fi network, but they're also starting to offer value-added services across the network that contribute to meeting specific socioeconomic um, needs. And so what the impact funder in a results-based model would say is that it would pay on delivery and uptake of content. So it's not good enough just to connect individuals to the network, mm -hmm. but you now want to see them actually using some of the content that's being delivered across the network. So an example of that might be that if Project Seasware has uploaded a metric tutorial, you want to see that people are actually downloading the okay, tutorial. Okay, so not everybody's on YouTube just watching cats, I don't know, some, exactly. some cats playing with yarn <laughs> videos. They're actually yes. doing what's deemed to be sort of socially beneficial for their sort of... Exactly, okay. and they've now actually gone and accessed it and, and yeah. pulled it down. So there's a level of, of consumption, if that makes sense. And then the third level would be something that's more like a social impact bond, which speaks to outcomes-based financing. And that would be to take it to the next level and say, well, as a result of having downloaded that metric tutorial, we are in fact seeing an improvement in metric pass rates. Jeez. Okay. So it's really about what you're able to measure. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like there's a lot going on here. And I'd love if we could get the guys from Project Disease in studio one of these weeks. I'm kind. We're just going to the last portion of the show, and I'd love to to speak a bit about your work. Mm. So, for everyone listening in, it's no secret that she knows her stuff and she knows what's going on, and is really able to guide a lot of nonprofits or social enterprises or funders or, or government bodies through this murky world of of of, of understanding your BEE and where you stand, understanding your outcomes and where you stand, and of course, trying to be financially sustainable and and sort of overall sustainable. So, Karen, you've developed a book. I'm holding it right now. It says Building Organization Sus Organizational Sustainability, a handbook for civil society, society organizations. Could you tell us a bit about sort of this book? And I'm told it's an accompanying tool and, and, and how it works and how you sort of see it growing from here. Yeah, sure. Um, we developed the book really to enable organizations to take themselves through a process of learning about various domains of organizational sustainability. Um, it was developed in direct uh, partnership or, or um, alongside the development of an online self-assessment tool. Mm. And really the intention was for an organization to firstly assess itself using the online tool to understand, you know, what gaps exist from a sustainability point of view and to be able to, as a result of the gaps, identify capacity development actions that would need to be implemented in order to get it closer to a place of being more sustainable. Mm. 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 And um, this online 
online tool kicks out a series of actions and and um, ideas around what could be done in order to move closer to that place of sustainability. And it, in fact, makes reference to the handbook and exactly where you can go and read up about how to implement those things within the organization. Um, I must say that much of the credit needs to go to USAID, who supported the development of much of the sustainability mm. content and thinking through its PEPFAR program. But um, the, the final wrap-up was, was done in partnership with the Deutsche Bank South Africa Foundation, who supported us in being able to really tighten up all the content and to be able to um, to launch this book and, and the online tool that's linked to it. Okay. I mean, it sounds really like just a one-stop shop, not only for the finances, but all the other aspects. I mean, just looking through it, it touches on so many key things <laughs> from supplying the key, the, the key sort of inputs that one's needs to, to recruitment, to governance and setting up the board. You've mentioned the role of the board quite a bit. Yes. So it seems like a great one-stop shop and, and sort of with the online tool combined to really guide a new or existing nonprofits through, through this world. I imagine that a lot of people also just want you personally. So how do we get a hold of you, Karen? How do we get a hold of Capacitate and, and, and hopefully, you know, get, get some nonprofits out there to access your expertise and your, and your advice in, in, in navigating all this? Oh, thank you, Kingsley. Um, well, Capacitate has a website, um, which is capacitate.co.za. And I think the best way to contact us mm. is probably on email, which would be at info at capacitate.co.za. Okay. I hope it's not one of those info sites where you never hear back from. I hope no, you is, should hear back. I hope somebody looks, <laughs> looks at didn't. this one. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you for making time. You're most welcome. Fantastic. For everybody listening in, thank you, as usual, for taking time to hang out with us. As usual, you can share and download the podcast. A really, really big sort of day in politics on, on, on sort of the d- discussion around Jacob Zuma in Parliament today. Make sure to follow at Ranjani Munasami for all the details on that. And I'm sure we'll be chatting a bit about that next week. I'm out of time. I'm going to get sort of cut off any second now. Thank you. We'll see you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. CliffCentral.com.